Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. We're back with another episode of the Secret Library Podcast. I am delighted to have Gary Wilson on today. He is not only the author of two novels, Getting Right, which came out this year, as well as Sing Ronnie Blue from 2007. He's also a professor at the University of Chicago's Graham School, and he got his MFA at Bowling Green in Ohio. And his short fiction has appeared in journals including Glimmer Train, Witness, Quarterly West, and Quick Fiction. And he was the recipient of the Graham School's 2014 Distinguished Service Award. Thank you so much for coming on, Gary. Thank you for having me. I've been really excited to have you on because I think you have a lot of insight about writing and getting to publication, but also because you are an English and creative writing professor, a lot of people have been asking since we had Sarah Selecki on a while ago, and she started to talk about the writing process, but people are really curious about how do you structure a story if you're going to write a book? Um, so I'm, maybe we'll start there. Like, how do you go from idea and then figure out how you're going to structure this thing into a whole novel? Well, um, let me use an example of, of Getting Right, my latest book, because it, 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 I had to very consciously figure out how to structure the uh, narrative in, in that book. Um, because it, uh, uh, much of the material is, is autobiographical. And that made it necessary for me to be able to create an artistic distance because I didn't want to write a memoir. I wanted to write a novel. And in order to do that, I had to figure out, number one, how to get my emotional self some, give myself some space from the material and also to uh, be able to take a, a big wad of uh, life material and try to make it into some coherent whole. And what, what I basically did, as, as a good friend of mine, Stephen Dixon at Johns Hopkins, said and, and says to uh, many of his uh, classes, is he tells people, you know, look, we all write from experience and therefore a lot of what we write is it does have some autobiographical basis 
So the first thing you need to do is change the names of the people you're writing about. So the, that's the first step in, in setting up the characters you want to write about in, in a book. And in, in my case, I had a brother and a sister, both deceased now, and I'd always wanted to write about my family in a large sense, in, a, in the largest sense. But I, in order to do that, you have to focus. And so what I focused on were the three siblings from this family. And I named uh, the sister Connie, I named the brother, the older brother, Len, and I named the narrator, me. So me has no normal name. He's only referred to as me. I, I did that consciously. I mean, it, it evolved. I mean, I'm not saying I, you know, sat down and thought rationally about everything, but it, what happened was that every time I set up an artifice, like the names of the characters, that gave me like a half step of artistic distance so that I could feel like I could play with things. Um, and as I moved along, what, what fascinated me most was the uh, interaction between memory and imagination. And so I kind of, I let that just go. And, and it became the, I guess, the dominant theme in, in the book, because the narrator will consciously write, I imagine, I imagine, I imagine when, when there is no basis for, uh, you know, in the quote unquote real world, no factual basis for what he's writing about. So I'm kind of, kind of rambling, but, but you get the sense that, that I did make a very conscious effort to create an artifact. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious about, because I think it's amazing, yeah, changing the names. And I hear people talk about using the, the wording, I imagine, in a memoir situation, or it's possible that this happened, or language that that shows that they're speculating, but I'm I'm impressed that you felt the need to kind of hold to that, even though you were consciously writing fiction. I intended it, and so I hope it comes off that way as as being a little tongue in cheek and <laughs> you know maybe a little over the top artsy to call the reader's attention to the fact that uh, the writer is basically an unreliable narrator and. That, uh, in terms of structure, I, let me go back a little bit, because the guy has to be unreliable, otherwise the dramatic tension that holds the novel together doesn't work. And basically what, what happens is that very early in the story, the sister, who the narrator doesn't have a very good relationship with, he doesn't have a good relationship with anybody, is challenged by the sister that if he's so damn smart, why doesn't he write the story of her life? <laughs> he is a writer. And so she, you know, is sort of poking him in the eye with, with his own profession. And he thinks about it and then says to her, okay, I'll do it if I can tell it the way I see it and not the way you want it to be seen. And so all the way through the narrative is this sense that 
he is almost defiantly telling the story from his perspective and by definition then becomes unreliable because it's only his story that ultimately gets told. So the whole thing turns out to be about me and not about the uh, brother and sister and the larger family. And I, again, I, I consciously made an effort to do that. And I, as often as possible, uh, will call the reader's attention to it so that that uh, try to keep the, the tension in the forefront of, of the book. So that, that became a major structuring feature. Um, the book is not, uh, Sing Ronnie Blue is almost is a uh, minimalist book by comparison in the sense that it's very spare, it takes place roughly within 24 hours, and has a very clearly defined narrative arc. This book, uh, Getting Right, by comparison, goes all over the place. Hmm. It's exotic. In conventional terms, it doesn't follow a narrative arc. Although I think overall it does. I mean, there's, there's a growing tension and, and a, definitely a release of tension at, at the end of the book. Um, so in that sense, I guess it is a little more traditional. But it's, it's episodic. It, it, you know, tells all kinds of crazy stories about the family and uh, other things as well. I want to jump in because there's something you said that I really love. Um, I love the concept of the unreliable narrator. And I've always wondered if there is such a thing as a reliable narrator. Do you think that, that it's possible to have, you know, obviously if it's omniscient or something, you trust it a little bit more. But I feel like all narrators are to varying degrees unreliable, and that's sort of what I love about them. Yeah, and it, well, sure. You know, if one were totally truthful, it would be pretty boring. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think to some degree. Now, there, there are, I suppose there are narrators who attempt to tell more faithfully, you know, their, the story at hand. And, and the person I created for, for getting right could honestly care less. It's, <laughs> he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to figure out this completely screwy, screwy family and what his place in that family is. So it does come back to him almost all the time. And um, it intentionally does that. It's... There's a very, uh, another structuring quality I should mention is the voice, the narrative voice in the book is uh, one that just kind of, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I, I recognized it when I heard it and I loved it and I stayed with it. And I think that helps uh, maybe as much as anything else to keep the narrative contained and to direct it. Um, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I'm wondering, because I'm thinking, you know, of people listening who are kind of starting out in the writing process, if you can share a little bit, like if we can slow it down and talk about how that happened, like, were you just sitting down to write and this voice just appeared? Um, I'm curious about how that happens, because it makes sense to me, like characters coming from, but I'm curious about how it showed up for you. I've written about this on my on my blog. Oh, good. We'll link to that. Because there, there was a, a thing from from my experience, my real life experience. I went to visit my sister in the hospital, and she had 
a pick line in her arm. And I don't know if you know what that is. I do, a, but I don't know that everyone listening does. Yeah, it's a, um, a line that medical professionals can use mainly for drugs and, and uh, other fluids to get directly into the bloodstream. So they thread this long tube through the veins into the heart. And uh, that allows them direct, direct access. If, if they're giving chemotherapy or something, they can use that. Some people eventually get a thing called a portacath, which is an implanted catheter that uh, they don't have to use, just hook directly to it on the outside and they don't have to thread the line. But anyway, I went to see her uh, in the hospital, and she had this line in her arm, and the skin around the line was all puffed up and sort of puckered. Mm -hmm. I could not get that image out of my mind. Mm -hmm. Left, I went home, and all I could see was that that puckering around the, the insertion point of the tube. And I thought, you know, I. I was working on another novel at the time, and I just could not get that image out of my head. So I said, okay, just write it down and make it go away. So I wrote it down, and I came up with the image of the Betty Boop mouth, and some people listening won't know who Betty Boop is. But uh, she was a cartoon character from many, many years ago. I hope they know who she is. I hope so. (laughs) But one never knows had a remarkable mouth, um, yes. big red lips, and she could pucker up her, her mouth so that it, there was just this tiny little hole. And that, that, that fit perfectly for what I wanted, and so I call it a bit of deep mouth. And I wrote maybe three pages, and in that three pages, a momentum started building that you know, you need, but I had never quite experienced it to the extent that I did with that. And from those three pages, the voice emerged, the technique of not using direct dialogue anywhere in the book emerged, in which I thought, hmm, this is kind of cool. And I'll challenge myself to see if I can write a whole book without using any quotation marks, uh, which I did. And I I personally love the results, and I think um, most people who have responded to, uh, you know, tell me they like it. So um, I consider that successful. Yeah, the, definitely. The book became itself, and and it became an obsession for me. Um, and usually, when I'm writing, the material is is obsessive, but I had never quite been in the clutches of something as strong as this. So there was, again, going back to um, trying to contain it, trying to structure it, it became a real challenge for me. And, you know, there were times I just had to walk away from it and go over to the park or, you know, go buy groceries or do whatever you do to clear your head. Because I I just, I was so steeped in that uh, world I was creating that it it was kind of, driving me crazy and so <laughs> <laughs> I think that happens yeah yeah and and so you know all of this stuff just as my wife reminds me um, it didn't happen 
quite like I tell it sometimes, <clears throat> because there, it, it was a longer evolutionary period and stops and starts and uh, that sort of thing. And it, it was a while, for example, where I started the book writing about Connie. And so I was going to call it Connie's story. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I've got to get Len in here, the brother. Mm -hmm. So the next section of the of the book is Len, and then I thought, well, what the book's really about is me, me, the narrator. Right. And so the third section became a section about me, mm. except when I look back at it, and I call these, I ended up calling them acts, act one, act two, act three. I, I, I did really kind of blatant um, structuring things like every part, every act, begins with the character in bed. Oh, wow. Uh, Connie's in a hospital bed in the beginning of Act One. Beginning of Act Two, Len is in a uh, bed at a nursing home. And the beginning of uh, Part Three is the narrator at home in Chicago uh, waking up on a Sunday morning. I think that happened consciously. It did after after... I opened part two with, with Lynn in bed. I said, well, you know, me has to be in bed at the beginning of part three. So I did some pretty conscious things like that uh, in order to uh, structure the narrative enough that uh, uh, I could work with it and I could make it mine and not uh, be beholden to external facts. And that's something that, you know, when I was teaching, I always uh, uh, reminded students that probably what they were writing about had some basis in, in the real world. But what they have to pay attention to is that you leave that behind you and what you're writing takes on a logic of its own that you have to be willing to look at and pay attention to. That if you try to blend in everything from, quote, the real world into the fiction you're writing, uh, it will fail. So it's almost a guaranteed thing. So <clears throat> I think you, um, you know, uh, have pay, really pay quite a lot of attention to um, how you tell the story, and in a very large sense, how you tell it and what you tell and what you don't, because that's, um, you can't put everything in. So it sounds like the the book started as an impulse to tell the story of these three siblings, but I almost picture it like you get into a little submarine with that map and you're intending to take that trip, but as you're going, the story itself takes on its own dimensions. So I wonder how much at the end of the time you were working on the book and you know, of course, we all know there's many drafts in between. Did it feel like these characters were completely separate people from the people they were to you at the beginning? Oh, yes, definitely. You mean like my real world brother and sister? Yeah, exactly. Like you thought about them that way at the beginning, but then they became Len and Connie and they were yeah, they were their own people. And me, me yeah, me, but the, the narrator it, it took on a he was somebody completely different. That's a very good question because, um, yeah, that had to happen 
in order for me to write the book. If if I hadn't been able to uh, separate myself, my real self, from those people, I don't think I could have written. I think that's the sort of big, the big choice that happens between writing fiction and writing memoir. Like if it had been a memoir, you would have had to stay much closer to your real life brother and sister, right? Versus saying, no, I'm going to go and use this as inspiration, but I'm going to go off in a different direction and see what happens there. Yeah, it's exactly uh, the issue for me because I, as I said, I did not want to write a memoir. And um, the only way I could possibly uh, work with it was just to say, I don't really care about what really happened or who said what or who did what. Uh, there are certainly instances in, in the book that uh, are based on things that I experienced, but there, there are other things that are completely made up that have no bearing, you know, in, in the external world at all. I love that freedom. And I'm always curious about what makes people as writers drawn to sort of the more writing from personal experience memoir arena versus fiction, because you can hear, I can hear arguments for both being scarier, <laughs> like, oh God, there's a totally blank page and I could make anything up and I don't know what could happen. Fiction can feel really scary. But then there's also, oh, I don't know how to, I don't know if I'm going to tell it right. There's all this stuff that's already there. I don't know how to work with it. So I, I think historically, obviously, your other book was a novel and you've focused on fiction. Is that how you felt about fiction? No, uh, I'm not sure of the question. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm not either. <laughs> that that it's it feels less intimidating to write something where you get to make up the world and that the world is not there rather than trying to interpret something that is already there. In the early part of my education, I was a history major, so I do have a respect for history. Um, but I find in fiction, uh, no matter the genesis of it, um, the issue for me is both artistic and uh, emotional. It, uh, artistically, mm. I want to write the best prose I, I'm capable of and also play with ideas and play with uh, structure, play with, uh, experiment with doing things like not using quotation marks for a whole novel and yet have people talk all the time. And <clears throat> I, I like those kinds of experiments, and, and I'm not sure, uh, I, I just was never drawn to something like memoir, uh, I guess, because I didn't feel as free with it, and I, I had a good experience mm. um, team teaching a class with a very good memoirist uh, at uh, the University of Chicago, and it was interesting to just sit and talk with her about the differences between memoir and and um, fiction. And the one thing she kept coming back to was that with a memoir, your main uh, charge is to be as faithful to the facts as you can possibly be. And in fiction, of course, you just—that's the first thing you throw out the window. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I guess I, I like as uh, wasn't it Mark Twain who said we're all professional prevaricators. 
In other words, we were born liars. And, and we love getting by with it. And uh, hoodwinking our, our readers enough that they allow us to get by with it. Um, so that, that's, I think that's why I like fiction uh, so much, is, it, is the amount of leeway and, and freedom there is in the creation of it. So in, in all, it, I love that you brought up um, teaching because I'm curious about where you see people or your students, where have you seen them kind of going wrong or getting lost in the process of writing fiction? Um, and are there points where people just seem to lose it? And I'm curious about what those are. Uh, probably um, if, if they try too hard, again, if something's based on their real life experience and they try too hard to um, make, you know, their fiction faithful to real life events, that that is nearly possible to do. Uh, and I, I've had students just uh, get lost in that process and no matter, you know, what I or anyone else uh, said to them. Um, and so that's one place where I, you just have to forget whatever it's based on. Mm-hmm. Because you're, as I said, your work will take on a logic of its own and a direction of its own that you need to pay attention to. The other thing is that I usually would tell my students um, that you want to, you know, probably um, we all want to attract readers. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to, you know, uh, practice in a cave and, you know, listen to the sound of one hand clapping or something. (laughs) Not forever. At least Um, not forever. And I tell students that when when you're writing, when you're in the room alone and looking at the blank screen or the blank page, never think about the reader looking over your shoulder. And mm-hmm. I, I have had students get into trouble uh, because they, they didn't pay attention to that. And if you, if you start writing, thinking, what will people like or not like, you're automatically in trouble. Yeah, because you, you, you can't possibly no, know that no. either. Like, I, I've also had students, I guess, um, in a related kind of way, get so... Um, invested in what people tell them, what they say to them about their writing, that they'll that they change it all the time, you know. And my rule of thumb <clears throat> with students would be, you know, if you're in a class of uh, ten people, twelve people, and at least half of them have the same reaction, I would tell students to write comments in the paper all over all over anybody's story or uh, chapter. And then we would, you know, hand those back to the to the author at the end of the session. Um, and I would say, you know, if six out of twelve people said basically the same thing about a sentence or a word, you might want to think about it. But if only one person has pointed it out, you know, in in the end, it's your work. In the end, you can do anything you want, and you can't listen to everybody every comment you hear. But if there is a pattern emerging, you might want to pay attention to that. Um, but you can't, don't get mired down in... I had a student, for example, who 
was trying to finish her novel. And she was such a, a perfectionist. And I kept telling her, don't give this to people to read until you're satisfied with it. And, but she would do that anyway, and then it would come back from a reader, and she would go into this tailspin about, well, maybe I don't want to open it this way, I, maybe I need to move this chapter here. And, and then she would, you know, completely <clears throat> mess up her own vision of, of the work at hand. And it, that was a disaster. She finally got it straightened out, but it took years for her to work through mm. this sort of sense of insecurity and perfectionism. That, that sounds really rough. Well, it can be. And I don't, I'm not sure there's anything, nothing I've ever done that can give me in a, you know, few hours uh, a feeling of complete elation and then utter depression of looking at my own writing. Mm. That's, <laughs> that's all it takes. <laughs> so um, it, 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 you got to be... I think a little bit crazy to do it anyway, but uh, you have to be careful <laughs> that it doesn't drive you the rest of the way there. Well, how do you? How have you dealt with the process of revision? Because I think there is this tension between, you know, you do your best in the first draft, knowing that that's not probably going to be what you ultimately put out there to publish, and that there's this process of refining it. But what is your philosophy around? revising and starting out with these ideas and then ending up with published um, books. I guess I, that also, I've been writing long enough that that process has evolved. And uh, when I, when I have a class that involves um, rewriting, I usually advise students to wear a creative hat when they're writing, when they're doing the first draft. Uh, just let it go. Don't even think about it. Just get in the flow of the prose and of the story and go forward with it without being self-critical because that can just slam the brakes on. Uh, I don't remember. One of the French authors said he could spend all morning deciding where to put a comma and afternoon trying oh, to yeah. take it out. And you know, it's sort of, <laughs> if you allow yourself to do that, you can just, you know, I've, I've spent half a morning trying to decide on a word and then I'm just livid with myself. But that's when you, uh, that's when you put the critical hat on instead of the creative hat. And so I like to think of the revision process. I, I, I kind of divide it into creation, then revision. But as I said, that has that's evolved over time with me as well. That usually when I sit down to write, I will back up, say, 10 pages and read those aloud to try to get into the rhythm of the into the rhythm of the work and allow myself to sort of uh, fuse with the with the language. And while I'm doing that, I will occasionally see a word I don't like, or I'll see some punctuation I don't like, or a sentence that just doesn't quite, you know, come off the tongue smoothly. So I, I, I usually now will uh, take care of those small things, but I don't ever, if I'm sitting down to write fresh stuff, I don't ever begin thinking about, uh, well, 
does this section belong? Uh, you know, because then, mm. then I get confused about what I'm doing, and I don't do either thing very well. So when I finish a draft, what I like to do, if I have time, is put the work away, just completely away and start, start on something else, and leave it for a month or so, and then go back to mm -hmm. it uh, with uh, a dispassion which is a hard thing to do. That's when you put on the critical hat and just be murderous with it. And you know, <laughs> cut words, cut pages, cut uh, you know sentences, whatever, um, and and polish it up. And you know get get the big things right. Does the voice work? Do, are the characters consistent? Uh, are they interesting, engaging? Uh, is the story? something worth telling that's that's a huge question and you know if you satisfy all those things then then for me the next step is to just really be brutal with my own language and smooth it and smooth it and smooth it and smooth it that's when you go over ten times not not the same sentence but in in the process of, of revising I I look at it as kind of like making the bed, you smooth out all of the wrinkles as you go along, and then the next time you come back, there'll be another wrinkle, so you have to smooth that out, and that can take a long time. <laughs> I think that's, in the end, how how your best work, or my best work, I should say, uh, emerges, is through that general process that I've just been talking about. So you'll go all the way through an entire first draft before putting the critical hat on, is to, what it sounds like. That, you know, that's ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't always, uh, I'm not always the most successful about it. But um, uh, in fact, right now I'm working on the novel that I was writing when Getting Right interrupted my life. I've allowed myself to have doubts about where I'm going with it. And that is, you know, it's devastating. Because now when I sit down to look at it, I not only think about it as a whole, I think about what I'm doing at the moment and whether that's really anything worthwhile. So I've, I've got myself in a little tailspin with that that I'm trying to work out of. So it, it, it's, it is a practical piece of advice is not to let yourself get distracted until it's time to get distracted. So do you... What does your actual daily or regular writing routine look like? I'm always fascinated by how people actually sit down and do the writing. I have a good friend uh, who's no longer uh, at University of Chicago, but in fact, he's in, he's in L.A. doing screenwriting. He used to talk about uh, you have to be able to spend some ass time. <laughs> you have to go to your desk and you have to sit there and you have to not answer emails, and you have to not answer the phone, and you have to not, you know, do whatever, play solitaire or whatever, um, and act, you know, immerse yourself in your work. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to get 20 pages written, but you're there, and I think the issue is that you need to have discipline, mm -hmm. and you have to, <laughs> I remember once at a conference of participant. Uh, came up to me after the conference in tears and said, you just saved my marriage. And I, wow. <laughs> she said, yes, you told me to be selfish. 
And I said, well, yeah, I guess I did. I told you to go in your room and shut your door and don't allow anybody in uh, until you're finished with what you want to do. And she said, well, that's what I've not been able to do, but I'm going to do it now. And it, 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 But in order to do that, you do have to have some discipline. You, and so what I, I treat writing now uh, like a, a, a job, except I love it. Right. A lot of people don't love their jobs. But what I do is um, I come out and have coffee and read the newspaper. I'm still that old-fashioned. And um, have some, you know, a little breakfast. And then I'll bring a cup of coffee into my desk and I sit down. And I've been bad recently about uh, allowing myself to look at emails before I start writing. But I try to make quick uh, work of that because most of them are junk anyway. Uh, yeah. Particularly in the political season. But then I, I try to work until uh, noon, and then uh, I'll have lunch and get to read the funny papers uh, as, as my reward. Nice. And then I'll usually, because I tend to get sluggish after lunch, I will um, maybe, almost every day I go down to the... Um, store to buy food for the evening meal and that gets me out of the house otherwise i wouldn't talk to people <laughs> and so i go do that and maybe a couple of other errands and then i'll come back and attend to business stuff and then i usually close out the afternoon by looking at where i am in in my writing so that i'm thinking about it subconsciously while i'm not at my desk um so in a nutshell, I, that's basically, it's, it's kind of a boring life, but it's... No, I think it sounds great, actually. I find workable. And um, it allows me, particularly when I'm working on a uh, novel-length piece, it allows me to <clears throat> maintain a certain momentum. Um, and again, that's an ideal picture because it doesn't always work for the days when I don't get anything done. But um, I try to be sure that I, what I call, I touch the work mm. every day. Whether, you know, that means I write 1,500 words or not, I, you know, that's a different issue. But uh, being in contact with it, thinking about it, letting it perform its osmosis on me, then I can, you know, I can be with it for, for years if I have to. Uh, and most of the time, it, you know, it takes, takes me a long time to write a book, so... You know, three or four years is not unusual. No, I don't think, I think that sounds perfectly reasonable for all the work it takes. Yeah, and um, who's Marilyn Robinson, who, between housekeeping and Elliot, uh, I think it was, was like 14 years. Yeah. Um, and she was doing other stuff, teaching, you know, writing essays and philosophical works and that kind of thing. Nonetheless, that's a long time between books. And I think she's a very fastidious writer. Unlike somebody like uh, Joyce Carol Oates, who pumps out, used to, a book a year. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, between you and me and your audience, uh, our audience, the sometimes her prose sounded like that, too. But, mm. you know, the stories are usually so powerful that she can get by with stuff that lesser writers would not be able to get by with. For example, I, I heard, I don't know how many books of hers I read that had this very phrase, 
as if for the first time. Mm. It kept coming up and coming up until I got to the point that I began looking for it. <laughs> no writer wants to hear that, I don't think. No, probably not. But anyway, it's a, it, it, it's a, a tremendously varying occupation. I mean, I, uh, there are people who write all night and sleep all day, and there are people who write 10 minutes a day. There are people who write on the train. There are people who write at their offices when they should be doing other stuff. It's a, it's a profession that, that wonderfully lends itself to idiosyncrasy and quirkiness, but uh, at the same time, I, I think everybody who has been successful at it in the sense of producing things, not being bestsellers necessarily, but in terms of producing things, uh, are serious about it and are dedicated. And that means ass time. <laughs> so ass time is essential, is what it sounds like. Absolutely, I think. Yeah. I think so too. I love the idea of touching the work every day as being the goal rather than a certain word count because I think making meaningful contact with the story, it sounds like, is what propels it forward. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, it, you know, you're, you may not look like you're working on anything, but your mind is processing all the time. And even as we were talking and I was thinking about the novel I'm working on now and the the sort of pit I'm in with it. I was thinking about how to extricate myself from that uh, as we were talking. So, you know, just your mind constantly is is at work on whatever you're working on. Yeah, and I think you have to give it the space, like a good quality space in order to sort of chew through the material. Yep, yep. Well, I hope that this has helped and maybe maybe it will propel you forward with uh with that book how how far along are you with About, it uh, three fourths of the way finished so i oh great i know where i wanted to go i have probably uh two or three more chapters that i know what's going to happen in and i know where it's going to end so my main thing is to get from where i am now to there yeah and i i have good ideas. And when I'm honest and I go back and reread what I've done, I get really excited. Uh, so there, there are parts of that, that I think are, are as good as anything else I've written. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just part of the process to be up and down. As I said, you can be elated and depressed in the same morning. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to ask you one more question just because I can't resist. But do you, when you're working on a book, do you always know where it's going to end or does it become clear to you over the process or do you tend to start with an outline? Well, it's a very good question. I, I usually like to have an idea where the book's going. Otherwise, I, I, it's unsettling to me. Um, but forgetting right, I had no idea how to end that book. Things things were happening in it that I hadn't anticipated, and things were said and done that I hadn't anticipated. That they just kind of came out of the blue, and they worked. But it, I never had the the real sense of where it was going to go until a, a friend was visiting, and I started talking to her about the, the you know where I was with the book, and. She said, well, if it's a 
comedy, it'll end with, with a wedding. If it's a tragedy, it'll end with a funeral. And I thought to myself, voila. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to tell you how it ended because I want people to read it. But yes, I, people should read it. That, that helped me. And once I, once I had, um, had the idea for the final scene in the book, it just all, everything came together. All the, all, uh, there's, a, there's one theme that ran, runs through it that I wasn't aware of until after I finished the book. But it starts, again, with that, with that mouth image mm-hmm. in the very beginning and talks about the sister being insatiable. Mm. Always wanting something to eat, always needing a snack or because they never feed her enough. The issue of food and ever being sated runs all the way through the book. And that had to have been a, a subliminal matter that just kept coming back that I wasn't thinking consciously about. And I'm glad because I probably would have ruined it. And the book ends on a food note. Mm. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of writing is is a very interesting process. I mean, part of it's rational. Part of it is, uh, you know, you can understand intellectually and so forth. But stuff like that, uh, I suppose a psychologist could tell me, you can probably tell me. But anyway, it, uh, it just, to me, kind of appeared. And uh, I like the fact that I, I didn't know about it, as I said, because I, I'm sure I would try to manipulate it somehow and, and ruin the whole effect. But, you know, part, uh, so I looked at writing as being partially mystical and partially rational. And, and wherever those two come together is kind of where the imaginative world takes form. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's, in many ways, what I love about it as well, both as a reader and working on writing as well, is that even if you have a plan, it's it's still going to surprise you. Yeah, yeah. And the best books for me are ones that, that do surprise and delight, both artistically and in terms of story. Uh, I don't like to be tricked. Um, so, you know, I kind of stay away from that type of writing. But um, I, I love being taken on adventures. Um, and that can be, you know, a, a tragedy, but it's, it's an adventure. It moves me from where I am to a whole new place. And that's kind of what is sustaining about the business to me is being able to try to create those places and invite people into them. I think that's so true. And we're going to put everything up so that people can find both of your books and what you've written, because I think they will love getting to read them, especially after hearing about how they were structured and be able to see that play out in in the books, which are structured so differently. I'm I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time to talk to us, Gary, and I know that people are going to get so much out of hearing sort of the the nuts and bolts aspect of how, how you work on your writing in both of these books, and then the one forthcoming, so you'll have to keep us posted on that as well. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you so much for um, uh, inviting me to participate uh, in this conversation. I enjoyed it very much, and I think you're doing a good thing. So I, I hope you keep up the podcasts and the blogs and all the rest of the stuff you're doing. 
Thank you so much. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring the show. Remember, if you use the code SECRET00 with SECRET all caps, you can get 10% off your subscription at musemonthly.com. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.